Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. The job was never less than fascinating. And ultimately, you're much more focused as a reporter on what's going on outside your organization than you are inside. There's always something else to write about. And the job for somebody who's curious at all, I mean, it's just a wonderful opportunity. You think up questions and then you call people and find out the answer. The truth is the economy is better than you think it is right now, I'll bet. Um, most sectors right now are doing pretty well, at least on the surface, with the big caveat that inflation is casting a shadow across it. All right, folks, this week, we are very excited to bring you Mike Rogaway of The Oregonian. If you are a subscriber of The Oregonian, you definitely have read Mike's stuff. And if you're not, you probably read his stuff on Twitter that's being tweeted about by other people. He is a business and technology reporter for The Oregonian. He's won multiple awards. He has an MBA and he can talk like he has an MBA, as you'll see in this episode. He grew up in the Silicon Valley area, but has been writing about the Silicon Forest for literally over two decades. He's deeply familiar with Oregon's business environment, business ecosystem, the players in the business community. And I really enjoyed the conversation and learned a lot from his insights. So Alex, what was the, the highlight or takeaway for you from the conversation with Mike Rogaway? Yeah, I thought the most interesting thing we touched on is just the state of the economy, which I mean, again, as we get into the episode is is weird because we have job layoffs are happening. We have super high inflation. People are paying a lot for everyday items. But then you have big companies like Intel who are struggling to hire workers fast enough and increasing pay and creating ridiculous incentives to try to get people to apply for their jobs and things like that. So I thought Mike did a really good job of sort of breaking down both the inflation, but then kind of the boom that some industries are seeing. And then one of my questions was about how resilient a city like Portland is versus, you know, those like Seattle and San Francisco. And I thought he had a really unique answer to that. So overall, I thought it was a great episode to understand a lot of the macro trends, which we've talked about kind of broadly on this podcast, but then also through the newsletter is things that we're always highlighting. And I think that Mike gave excellent analysis on all of them. Yeah, I was going to say, if our audience is mostly people in the political space or adjacent to the political space. It's, you know, legislators, lobbyists, staffers, people who work in state government. The way to think about this episode is like a primer on big business issues that you should be aware of and should be able to understand what trends are happening, what's driving those trends, et cetera. We're not gonna go super deep on any one topic, but we're gonna cover some of the high points that folks should be able to understand and explain like inflation, which sectors are doing well, which are struggling, technology, agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. So hopefully this is a useful episode for you all and you enjoy it. I think that's it. Alex, anything to add before we jump into the episode? No, Ben, nothing to add. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. Please make sure to subscribe and give us five stars and also check us out on YouTube. We are growing quite quickly on YouTube and you can see our faces, except in this episode, because my internet decided to be horrible, so you will not be able to see my face, but you can see Mike and Ben's face. You can take a look at them. And yeah, we're uploading all of our content to YouTube and we will have new content coming on YouTube at some point that likely will not actually be on the podcast if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or whatever. So yeah, check us out there. Just type in Oregon Bridge Podcast and you should be able to find it pretty quickly. And we'll see you in the episode. All right, everyone. Enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Rogaway, thank you for joining the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? 
We are doing well. We're excited to have you on. So I was reading about your bio, reading about your background. And is it true you joined the Oregonian in 2004? Yeah, it, that may sound like a long time ago. It feels pretty recent to me still. <laughs> You've got to be one of the most senior reporters at the Oregonian at this point. Yeah, I suppose that's true. But we, we actually still have a fair number of staffers who have been there longer than I have. You know, Ted Seconder, Jeff Manning, Tom Hallman, Margaret Haberman. You know, there's quite a few. Therese Bottomley, our editor, she's been there for 35 years. Well, so my question is two questions. The first question is, how did you originally land at the Oregonian? I imagine it was a pretty sought after position, statewide newspaper. And then actually, I'll let you answer that. Then we'll go to my follow up. Yeah, well, I'd worked at a, a number of rural and small town papers around the Northwest from Enumclaw, Washington, up to Juneau, Alaska. And I got interested in business journalism and had a string of good editors who gave me some good direction. And so after a spell, I, I decided I really wanted to focus on business journalism. I took a couple of years off, uh, went back to the University of Washington, got an MBA. And yeah, the Oregonian was a very attractive paper and it was my target all along. And I was very fortunate that the stars aligned right then that there was an opening and I got on as a, a technology and retail reporter at the time. And I've, I've stuck it out ever since. No kidding. So my follow-up question is about the sticking it out part. I will caveat this by saying from the outside, it does appear that the Oregonian's business model has reached a certain level of stability. We haven't seen, I don't think publicly at least, major layoffs or anything like that for at least a few years. I guess my follow-up is, why have you decided to, to stay in journalism as long as you have? There's a lot of reporters who kind of move on to private sector gigs or government gigs, but you seem to be in it for the long haul. Well, you're right. You know, I, I don't think it's any secret that the changes we made in 2013 were a big flop, but we've settled on a business model that's very stable now and we are adding reporters. And I'll say through all that turbulence, the, the job was never less than fascinating. And ultimately, what you're much more focused as a reporter on what's going on outside your organization than you are inside. Mm. I mean, obviously you don't ignore it, but there's always something else to write about. And the job for somebody who's, who's curious at all, I mean, it's just a wonderful opportunity. You think up questions and then you call people and find out the answer. And whether it's LeBron James or Warren Buffett or Phil Knight, if you've got a good question, they'll take your call. And, you know, so, you know, you spend your days thinking up things that you want to know and finding out the answer. It, it's really appealing. Yeah, I do think that's one of the coolest things in terms of, of course, Mike, we're not expecting to give away any of your sources, but I imagine you've probably spoken to some pretty cool people who we would die to have on this podcast. So yeah, uh, I, I mean, it's it's a great <laughs> opportunity. And, you know, I, I think there's also something to be said for regional journalism, for the daily paper, for the local paper. I think it really helped to be at a small town weekly to start out there because you have a real sense of the tie between the newspaper and the community. And particularly the importance of, of information and accurate information. I think Russell Baker, the former columnist at the New York Times, said everyone should start out as a sports reporter because sports fans almost certainly know more about the subject than you do. And when you get it wrong, they'll let you know right away. And that's, that is, that's true in a small town paper. You know, the people in the town know more about the town than you do, particularly if you didn't grow up there. And so it gets you right away. You, you come up to snuff. I was going to say that that uh, the quote about towns knowing more about sports is certainly true in Portland, yeah, <laughs> based on yeah. the uh, for, audio for sure. I mean, people are really passionate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say you have an, an army of eager fact checkers. So, Mike, before we 
ask you some questions about the state of Oregon's economy. We'd just kind of love to hear from your perspective about some of the most high profile stories or some of the most important stories that you think that you've covered while you're at the Oregonian. Oh, over the whole period, over the whole stretch? Well, when I was first at the Oregonian, I wrote some stories about about stock option backdating. The Wall Street Journal had done its work on that at the time. And I just got the notion, well, do you think it went on here too? And I didn't have some of the data tools that exist now, but it wasn't too hard to sift through the SEC filings and find four companies that indeed it something very much like that had happened. It's very satisfying to, again, talking about coming up with a question and going and, and finding out the answer. I mean, that was extremely satisfying to, to dig into and come up with an answer. It's pretty compelling and prompted companies to, to make some changes. In 2007, 2008, I wrote some stories about the way Intel engineers its new semiconductors, each new process node. They were inflection point, not dissimilar to the one they're at now. And I worked with Rich Reed, our very esteemed and longtime writer, and a graphic artist named Steve Cowden to do a series of stories and graphics telling that story and helping readers understand a, a very arcane business. And I think that really resonated with readers. It, it was a, a great way to present a very difficult subject. And I think the other thing that's been very satisfying to me over time is covering Oregon's data center industry, which we talk about small towns, is primarily concentrated in Eastern and Central Oregon. It's an enormous industry. They've invested a ton and they get tremendous tax breaks from the state. And there's no doubt these data centers are providing great economic benefit to the communities where they operate. I think that's a legitimate question whether or not the way the state has structured their tax incentives is working very well either for the small towns or for the state as a whole. I think there's no question who's getting the biggest benefit from those tax breaks um, from the economic equation. It's Which would be Google and Google, Facebook. Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. <laughs> They're the so it, in, in Oregon, the data centers, I know there's data centers in Prineville. What are the other towns um, or counties? Prineville, the Dalles. Prineville is, is Apple and Facebook. The Dalles is Google and Boardman and Hermiston, Umatilla County are Amazon. And so can you br briefly explain, uh, and then we'll kind of zoom out a little bit, but while we're on this topic, can you briefly explain how that relationship works? Basically, the state says we're not going to charge you certain taxes as long as you commit to doing certain things. Well, what they do is they give local communities the option through one of two programs to waive the property taxes that companies pay. And in Oregon, we, we levy property taxes, not just on land and buildings, but on the equipment and tools inside the buildings. Those are the tax breaks that brought Intel here or got Intel growing at any rate. And they, it was conceived in the 1980s as a way to attract paper mills, concrete manufacturing, you know, small, small scale industrial operations. But now we're talking about operations where a, a typical data center is, is more than $2 billion. And there's no ceiling on what those tax breaks can be, which is fine, except from the data center's perspective, as Amazon does in Morrill County and Umatilla County, so they say, well, this is the deal we want, give it to us or we're going next door. <laughs> and it really get, puts all, it does kind of the opposite of what it was intended to. It essentially gives all the power to the tech companies and they've not been shy about using it. That said, there, there is evidence that the communities are, are getting savvier about what they have at their disposal. 
the last deal that Wasco County and the Dalles cut with Google is much better for those communities in terms of the tax revenue they'll get than their prior deals. That said, Google, after winning that deal, has not announced that they're actually going to build those data centers. So we'll see if that tax deal worked out. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we will, I think, likely return to the technology sector. But to start out, when we're jumping into the sort of broader questions, thinking broadly about the Oregon's business community, the the state of the economy currently, um, you actually had a few articles actually recently about this. Can you describe for listeners what you conceive of as the thriving sectors of Oregon's economy and what sectors are struggling across the state? Well, the truth is the economy is better than you think it is right now, I'll bet. Most sectors right now are doing pretty well, at least on the surface. The sector that took the really biggest hit, you know, the hospitality sector, really clobbered during the recession because many things closed and things that were open like hotels, people didn't go to because they were traveling. They didn't want to travel rather. And that's was also the slowest to come back, particularly in the Portland area. There's strong evidence now that it is coming back, but it's it's not all the way back. Other sectors continued well, continued throughout pandemic recession, like semiconductors, for example. The warehousing sector boomed, Amazon and delivery services were really thriving. Construction has continued to do very well. We'll see about that because interest rates were very low and it was easy to finance new projects. Right. We'll see if that remains true. You know, a, a couple that have struggled are, you know, metals manufacturing and a couple heavy heavy industry. And there's a, a couple reasons for that. Precision cast parts, which was Oregon's second most valuable company before Warren Buffett bought it oh, eight years ago. Now, you know, their business is really tied into Boeing. And so Boeing between the 737 MAX and the downturn in travel and airplane orders during the the pandemic has struggled and precision cast parts has really faded. Although probably in the long run, their business, there's good reason to believe their business is solid. And Boeing's got a a large manufacturing operation here too, and they've suffered more directly. Mm. Retail struggled during the pandemic, but consumer appetites seem pretty good right now. So in general, things are are pretty strong with the big caveat that the inflation is casting a shadow across everything. And before we get to inflation, while we're talking about sectors and, and trends, you just wrote an article about how Oregon's publicly traded companies, like the largest companies yep. in Oregon, are actually doing much worse than the broader stock market is. Can you explain what's going on there? Yeah. So part of it has to do with the fact that it's been a long time since Oregon grew blue chip companies here. You know, the days of Louisiana Pacific, U.S. Bank, and Tektronix are, are long gone, with the notable exceptions of Nike and Columbia Sportswear and Lithium Motors. We don't have a lot of you know big anchor tenants in the economy. And so they tend to be a little more volatile and a little more vulnerable to a downturn. And there's sort of two broad trends that, that went on, maybe three. It will take some you know, pandemic darlings. Everyone knows Peloton's story. Well, over in Vancouver, which technically isn't Oregon, but is in our ecosystem, you have Nautilus. It's a well-known brand of fitness equipment. And they their financial results have been uneven for many years, but they really took off during the pandemic because, of course, everyone wanted a home gym. You couldn't go to the gym, so you buy your barbells and your weightlifting equipment and your, your home gym equipment and set it up at home. And their stock 
shot up from two to three dollars up to 20 some and it was really thriving but the same thing happened to them that happened to peloton and and many others you know it, it should have been clear that that demand wasn't necessarily indefinite people who needed home gyms bought them and then the market was sated and then the gyms reopened and so uh their stock is back around two dollars they've lost 90 percent of of their value from their peak then you have established brands like nike and columbia sportswear where there was just a little froth in the market and i think people you know investors wall street just put too much hope in certain sectors and and they were among them their businesses are solid there's no problem there but their stocks were just in hindsight overvalued and when there's a question about the future of consumer demand around inflation stocks that depend on a lot on retail sales are a little vulnerable and then we have a third category it, as i say we haven't grown blue chip companies we didn't grow any public companies from essentially in the region from essentially 2004 until more or less 2020 you know no new public companies were emerging of any size here but we've had several in the past year year and a half and a lot of them were taking advantage of the froth we mentioned companies like absai in, in vancouver arkimoto the eugene electric vehicles maker ESS Tech in Wilsonville, which makes a, a kind of battery to, to store renewable power. These companies are all very early in their life cycle. And when interest rates were low, when blue chip stocks were perhaps overvalued, people were looking, investors were looking for alternatives, places to put their money, and they were willing to gamble on those companies. With interest rates going up, with the economic outlook uncertain, those are much less attractive investments. And so by and large, their public debuts have been flops. Now that's not uniformly the case. Dutch Bros has held up pretty decently from its IPO. They've had some volatility, but they've held up pretty well from their IPO last year. And New Scale Power, which just went public this year, a nuclear power company based in Portland and, and Corvallis, has held up in the month or month and a half since it went public. So interesting. So what essentially what you're saying is. A lot of this has to do with not necessarily the fundamentals of any specific business, but the underlying trends of the market and how they apply to the organ, the brands and organs context. Yeah, and the kinds of businesses that we have here, yes. Got it. Interesting. Well, you've mentioned inflation twice, and I think Alex is going to ask a question about that. Yeah, Mike, and that, and I forgot exactly what you said, but you essentially had said the economy might not be as bad as you think. I think the really interesting and also strange thing, right, is that most people are feeling a lot of economic pain right now in terms of highest gas prices on record. That seems to be something that, you know, is broken basically on a weekly basis at this point. We have, what do they call it again? It's not de-inflation, but it's the, you know, they're making, they're putting less chips in your bag and they're putting one less piece of bread, right? You're getting, you're getting less product than what you normally Yes, I, I know that I, I know the term you're, you're referring to, but I can't think of it offhand, but yes. I know, uh, I, I can, I can of, see the news article shadow. in my head, but. Yeah, but so, right, and then the price of cars, hotel rentals, right, all this stuff is, is just driving up, you know, dramatically. But then on the other hand, we see lots of news articles, including ones that you've written, saying that, you know, Intel and other employers can't fill jobs fast enough, right? That they're struggling to meet the level of demand, not because it's not necessarily there, but actually because of supply chain issues. I'm sort of curious of your, and obviously this is a, a very big question and you know tens and dozens of other people are trying to answer this exact issue but what exactly is going on in the economy from your perspective like how do we have 
one of the hottest labor markets on records where people are changing jobs left and right, getting huge pay raises. But then at the same time, people are getting pummeled at the gas pump. They're struggling to pay for groceries. Consumer debt is way up. Like what, what exactly is going on for what I say to these two trends, which kind of be opposite to each other? Well, essentially the good and the bad are linked, but let's, let's start by, you know, the, the, I'll, do, I'll draw an analogy to, to one industry that's, that's, you know, taking off anywhere. So the semiconductor industry, which is one of Oregon's major industries, we are arguably the biggest hub per capita of anywhere in the country for semiconductor manufacturing. And sales in the chip industry, I think we're up 30% year over year in April. It's, it's really strong. But the problem is it could be that much, it could be much better but people can't get the raw materials they need to, to make these chips and they can't get the tools that need to make the chips. And there are many reasons for these bottlenecks, but you know, the starkest example is the companies like Lamb Research in, in Tualatin here can't make enough equipment to make semiconductors because they can't buy the semiconductors they need to make the equipment. So you have this vicious it's a weird cycle. paradox, <laughs> right? You know, the, the equipment that makes semiconductors needs semiconductors to be made in order to make the equipment. And, and it's the same thing that's going on with the labor market, as you mentioned, that costs are going up because in part because um, we can't find enough workers. So you have to pay your workers more to attract them from your competitors or, or really any other field that they might be in. As your costs go up, then you're going to charge your customers more if the market will bear it. We're in an unusual situation where inflation is, is high, but consumer demand up until pretty recently has also been high. And companies have been have felt pretty comfortable raising prices and you know raising wages as a consequence because consumer demand remains strong. The issue will be, and we're starting to see it now, if inflation outpaces wages, then buying power will decrease and you won't consumer demand will, will fall. And I mentioned Dutch Bros earlier. They're a great example in February, they uh, February or March. Yeah, February, I think. They said inflation isn't touching us. We're not seeing it at all. Our business is, is just gangbusters and we're really happy. And then in May, they said the exact opposite. You know, um, milk, which is maybe one of their single biggest costs, it may be their single biggest cost. That, dairy products were up 25% in cost to them. And their customers they were seeing were resisting price increases. They didn't feel that they could increase prices very much because these are customers, you know, Dutch Bros, of course, drive through kiosks where people buy coffee and Blue Rebel energy drinks and things like that. Well, if you know, these are drive-through kiosks. Everybody who comes is by definition driving. So if gas prices are going up, that's going to impinge on their ability to buy. And that, to me, examples like that are real warning signals, real red red lines that, ugh, you know, we're potentially running into to a squeeze that could reduce consumer demand. I saw somebody the other day, you know, our GDP is up, consumer spending is up, unemployment is low. I saw somebody the other day, though, I can't remember who, so I'm stealing this from some person I'm not even going to credit properly, describe inflation as a personal recession. And that's what it is. And over the last eight to 12 months, inflation is outpacing wages in Oregon. And that's a squeeze. It means as, as you know, Josh Lehner with the, the Oregon Office of Economic Analysis said last month in his economic forecast, our standard of living is declining. 
Uh, now, I don't want to overstate that at that point. At this point, the gap between inflation and wage increases is still fairly narrow, and if you compare inflation-adjusted wages in Oregon to where we were at the start of the pandemic, as a state, we're still well ahead. People are better off than they were two years ago. Well, two years, 26 months ago, before the pandemic, in terms of the wages that they're bringing in now. But this doesn't have to go on too much longer, and that would start to change. And consumer attitudes have a lot to do with whether inflation continues. If people expect it to continue, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It will. Yeah. And so, and I think Ben will zoom us out here in just a second, but I want to zoom us in on Portland to get your thoughts on something. So a lot of the layoffs I think we've been seeing so far are largely within the tech industry. And I'm sure there's other layoffs. Those are just the ones, right, that those get the big headlines in the Wall Street Journal that, you know, Coinbase is rescinding offers to people who've already accepted them and things like that. Other startups, you know, are cutting jobs, they're cutting costs, et cetera. So I'm assuming the city like San Francisco, right, at least in the time being, is going to be hit a lot harder than, let's say, I don't know, another city who focuses on tourism or something like that. Maybe that's too broad of an example. But kind of the, the question that I'm honing in on is as we're seeing these, and obviously it's a little bit different because, you know, different industries and things like that. But as we're seeing these trends, how resilient do you think that Portland is and kind of some of the bigger businesses in Oregon, like the Intels and the Nikes, are to these economic shocks compared to like the San Francisco's, right? Who like, they have the Coinbase's, they have the Salesforce's, they have the other tech companies. Curious of your thoughts on that. You know, that's a, that's an excellent question. They, economists sometimes call Oregon a high beta economy. It's an economic term. It means, you know, we're very volatile. And historically that's been true because of our industry concentration. Uh, historically, we were concentrated on heavy industry, timber, aluminum smelting, things like that, that tended to get wiped out early in a recession and take a long time to come back. We're much less volatile right now because we are much better diversified. Uh, our economy looks much more like the nations as a whole. I'm writing something for the weekend. You know, our, our wages from the 1980s until the Great Recession, Oregonians made 85 cents on the dollar or less, the nation as a whole. We just had a, a weaker economy. And that's changed a lot in the last 10 years in particular. We've diversified economically. We've added a lot of high-wage jobs. So I think economists would tell you we're not that much more vulnerable than the nation as a whole. That said, you know, you could easily imagine, a, you know, if something happened to the semiconductor industry, if something happened to, you know, retail sales, uh, Nike and Columbia Sportswear again, two of our biggest companies, that there might be things that could have that could hurt us more than would help would hurt others, but I, I think right now we're less vulnerable than we have been historically. So, taking your semi-optimistic note and asking a not so optimistic question, in the in you mentioned the state's economic forecast, and I believe somehow in the last forecast they mentioned the possibility that there might be signs of a potential economic recession on the horizon they didn't go so far as to predict it or say it's going to happen but they basically were sending a warning that this is possible what are you hearing from folks in the business community in Oregon is this something that they're anticipating or you're anticipating it's definitely on everyone's mind but it's just not something people are seeing right yet um, people aren't seeing big declines in sales or consumer demand. They are sometimes seeing softening. And so I think I think right now people remain much more concerned about the labor shortage than they are about the possibility of a recession. 
you know, it can change on a dime. And just, you know, it's just really hard to discern what the future is going to look like. You know, I, I think people were really surprised by how persistent this inflation was. And I think right now, you know, on the last economic forecast, I think Josh and Mark felt that there were signs that inflation would ease, if only because not necessarily that prices would fall back down, but you know, gas prices wouldn't keep going up at the same percentage rate they had before because the economic shocks that were that were affecting that had already taken place. Russia had already invaded Ukraine, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia and OPEC had already set their production levels. Uh, at lower than where the United States would like to see them, and that they felt that perhaps those things were were easing. And there were signs, and there still are, that some segments that drove the initial increases, some segments of the economy that drove the initial increases, like lumber prices and used car prices, were fading, not necessarily for good reasons, because demand is softening as interest rates go up. But it suggests that the Fed's medicine was working. Uh, you know, the Fed's trick is to thread the needle. Can they bring the economy in for that proverbial soft landing? And I, I think Josh and Mark, who are the state economists who deliver that forecast, felt that there was a path to that at this point. I, I did see another another case being made recently. Somebody was suggesting the possibility that a recession might happen, but it might be fairly brief. I think that's possible, too, that supply and demand might come into balance and the economic fundamentals are are remain relatively strong. But I, I think it's also possible conditions are somewhat worse in Europe. It's hard to predict what ha- might happen in China with COVID and additional shutdowns and some other wild thing could happen. <laughs> We've had a pandemic and a war in Europe, some other crazy thing could happen. And we're probably more vulnerable right now than we've been in some time, if something like that were to happen. So the basic advice is buckle up and stay tuned. <laughs> you know, I, I economists uh, are loath to predict the future, and I'm not an economist. So <laughs> anything I say is is subject to severe error. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, anything I say about the future. Sure, 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 sure. So a couple of industry-specific questions that we have. Um, we've talked about some of Oregon's various industries I want to talk about the agricultural industry. You wrote recently about Oregon being a farm reliant state, basically meaning my understanding from the article is basically like our state's economy depends more on farming uh, and agriculture than most other states. Why does that matter? Why should people in, in the policy space care or be concerned about being a farm reliant state? Well, I'll, I, again, I'll, I'll say as a caveat, I'm, I'm pilfering again from a real economist, Josh Lehner, who made this <laughs> part of his economic forecast that the legislature passed a bill uh, this last session that's going to require Oregon, Oregon farmers to pay overtime to farm workers. And as part of that bill, they said, you in the Oregon Office of Economic Analysis, you must pay attention to farm economy and see how this affects it. And so what Josh found was that we're about two times more farm dependent in terms of, of farm income than other states. And that's primarily because farming employment has stayed constant in Oregon over the last 50 years where it's fallen elsewhere. The rest of the, but it doesn't mean that farming has as important in Oregon as it was 50 years ago. Agriculture was maybe one in 20 Oregon jobs in 1970 and it's one in 40 now. So as a share of our economy, it's reduced. 
but I, I'll say it, it, it matters for a, a couple, for a few. One, it's part of Oregon's identity. You know, Oregon is preserved farmland. It's the whole point of the urban growth boundary and and things around here and the, the farm to table. It's part of our, our brand, part of our identity. Agriculture is important. It's important overall to the economy because even if it's one in 40 jobs, that is one in 40 important jobs. And perhaps most important, it's really important in a handful of counties or more than a handful, but um, really, really in, in like Sherman, Gilliam and, and Morrill counties uh, where the farm economy is like several times larger uh, per capita than the nation as a whole. These are areas with a, a lot of arable land and not very many people uh, and they draw in a lot of income. So, you know, it's important for the farm workers. It's important for these communities and, you know, to a large larger degree than in other states, it's important to our overall economy. Yeah, and then uh, shifting there, Mike, one thing I'm, uh, and Ben can actually vouch for this because I've been telling Ben, we need to have a guest on the show who can at least somewhat explain this question for probably the past year now. This is uh, true. I'm very, excited to, I'm very excited to ask it to you because uh, it's a very difficult question, uh, but I think that you'll have a good answer. So. Uh, uh, one thing just kind of in general is, and I feel like this has been changing a little bit with Portland as a, well, one, I don't necessarily think that Portland gets as much credit as a technology hub as it should, right? Like a lot of the sexy things I think that get shown in the media or the Silicon Valleys or the startups in Seattle. Uh, some of these startups, of course, don't ever end up making any money and they keep earning investor dollars, but they're still really cool and they're really hip. Uh, but then, of course, we have companies like Tektronix and Intel, which, yeah, I mean, you know, are basically uh, powering the, uh, you know, the revolution that we have now in technology. But they're they're not as cool. They're not as hip. So they don't really get as much attention. But the specific question I want to ask is kind of your thoughts, especially having worked now covering business for so long at the Oregonian is it seems like the incubation of startups when you compare Portland to San Francisco and Seattle, it's just really like they're not, they don't really seem to be on the same level. Uh, I'm just kind of curious of like, why do you think that is? Do you think it's something to do with the taxes? Do you think it's structurally? Do you kind of think San Francisco and the Bay Area just got lucky? And then of course that has network effects to it. Uh, curious of you to kind of riff on that. Well, it's all of that. If it were just the taxes, then Vancouver, Washington would be a major tech hub. Uh, and, it, and it isn't, although it's, you know, in the past, just the past few years, we've seen some real growth there, but it's, it's really essentially all of the above. I mean, it, it starts with the, the absence of, of tech oriented research universities. There's no Stanford, there's no Cal here. Um, and then there's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy around funding. It's always more difficult to attract funding from outside the market. And I think it's a cultural issue to a degree. I mean, Oregon has always been an a small business in an entrepreneurial state, but it's also not the sort of place where one comes because one has big ambitions. I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, the companies that have grown here, uh, you know, uh, Nike was started by an or somebody from Oregon. Dutch Bros is another good example. Bear Brothers down in Grants Pass. People don't come to Oregon because they think, oh, I'm going to get rich. Part of that's cultural. Part of it's tax. Uh, you know, if your if your goal is to become really wealthy, you're not going to come to a place with a high marginal tax rate. And well, there's another factor in that our tax system is really structured. We have long had 
some of the nation's most favorable taxes for large industry, particularly large industries that sell out of state, uh, because our tax structure is based on sales within the state. And so if you're Intel or Nike, where you sell a very small percentage of what you sell is actually inside Oregon, you're paying very little corporate income tax. So, you know, we're, we're for, in many ways, we're, we're structured um, around um, big business becoming attractive as a satellite, but not necessarily grow a big company here. The analogy I've always used is people come here to open a, a, a neighborhood hardware store. They don't come here to try and build the next Home Depot. And I, I think that's generally been true. Uh, and I honestly don't see any sign of that changing. Uh, that's not to say we won't have intermittent successes. We've had it. We've had them. And, and when we've had a couple in the past year, we mentioned Vicasa earlier um, and certainly Dutch Bros. Um, but I think it may be even harder going forward because companies are so distributed now that even if a company has big success, many of their employees may not be here. They may be all over the world. Uh, and it's not like any one company is coming here because there's a certain level of management experience or a certain level of concentration of software developers that you just can't find in Seattle. No, that's, that's just not the case. Uh, historically, our, our advantage has been we're lower cost. And that's good if you're starting a small business, but not if you're starting a, a big company where you're less concerned about cost than you are about revenue. Yeah. You are a very oh, good. No. You're a very good explainer, Mike. We appreciate you uh, um, helping think through that question. Um, our last two questions are kind of high level and um, uh, uh, procured, especially for our community of listeners who tend to be more engaged in the political space. So, in the political space, we often hear the term business community, um, and usually it's used as a sort of a unified group. The business community thinks this. Um, and we know, of course, that isn't true. But when you think of the, the term business community, and particularly in a political context, who do you think of as the major institutional players in Oregon's business community? Um, and then so that's the institutional players. And then also, which specific individuals within the business community do you think have particular power or influence among the rest of the business community? Um, well, I may do less well with, with individuals. Um, but, and it's complicated with the big companies. I think more so than most places, Oregon doesn't speak with a single voice in terms of the business community. I think the, the CAT tax, the corporate activity tax mm. was passed just before the pandemic 2019, I think, uh, I lose track of time, but I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, a lot of Oregon manufacturers were just tearing their hair out about this and they thought it was, you know, it's a, it's a tax on revenue, not their profits. And so if you have thin profit margins, boy, that's a big hit because whether or not you're making any money, you're still paying this tax. But the tax was written in large part by Nike. Uh, and so their approach to it was exactly the opposite. They're like, and again, we talked about the tax structure. The cat is written uh, to tax companies that do sales inside the state. Uh and Nike sales are largely outside the state. So for Nike, something that doesn't tax them but funds more, more revenue to, um, to education, to things that can develop a new generation of workers or help them attract workers to Oregon, that looked pretty appealing. Uh, and so I, I think you have that, um, that split all across the board um, because interests are, are so 
diffuse and because political philosophies are different. Um, you know, it, it, in the business community here, uh, Andrew Hone at the PBA has clearly proven he's an operator. He's not from Oregon, but he's, he's come in here and he's been very savvy. Be very interested in what Julia Brim Edwards does next. You know, she left Nike, where she was Saw very that. active in the cat tax. And as far as people who are influential and and very effective, she's right at the top of the list. Um, but it's interesting to me that Intel and Nike, with the notable exception of the cat, haven't generally taken a strong role in um, in public affairs here. Uh, and so we don't we don't have a big hitter. And in Portland, uh, there's a big split between, you know, the more progressive newer business community and the PBA and older, uh, more established developers like Jordan Schnitzer. Um, when it comes to the gubernatorial election in in November, we, we know where Phil Knight stands. You know, he's all in with Betsy Johnson. But I would say overall, I, I think it's very easy to imagine Oregon's business community as such being split a lot like the electorate. I mean, in thirds, uh, I'm not sure. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure there's a natural destination for them. There will be a natural, there will be, um, there will be a, a segment that, that goes naturally to the, the GOP and, and naturally to, to Democrats, but uh, especially with Betsy Johnson in the race, I, I think anything could happen. <laughs> It is interesting, and I'll, Alex, I'll let you I'll, I'll let you close um, uh, with the last question. But it is interesting to me that some of the divisions within the the business community, you alluded to this, are not actually about economics or business environment. They're actually about politics. They're the th same things that divide the rest of the population, and it just shows up in the business context. Well, for sure, yeah. for sure, that's true. Alex, yeah, and that was yeah, and that was kind of what my last question was going to be in terms of the election. But it's just, I mean, I think it's a really, I mean, well, uh, well, for the business community, of course, but then for everybody, it's a very interesting time in Oregon politics where you have uh, a third party candidate at 20%, the Republican at 28%, the uh, Speaker Kotek at 26%, and then, you know, a handful of, of undecideds basically going forward. Uh, I'm curious if you think, and then uh, Ben, I'll go ahead and, and let you close this. Uh, so I guess, you know, there's no necessarily favored candidate, I guess, that you could say from the business community, because as you said, that they're sort of all split. But what do you think happens if, or I guess, you know, what, what are kind of the priorities for business heading into 2022 uh, after the election? And kind of how I'll frame that, right, is that what's able to be passed by the legislature looks a lot different if Christine Drazen is governor than if Tina Kotek is. I think that the real wild card actually there too is uh, if Betsy Johnson finds a way to win the election and you have two houses that are controlled by Democrats, but then you have a relatively conservative uh, independent or former Democrat. Uh, what do you think kind of the, you know, in terms of once we get past this election, obviously it will look different, but like, have you been hearing things from the business community in terms of specific priorities, either if it comes for taxes or investment in education, maybe it's with climate policy. And again, kind of, as you said, players a little bit all over the place, but just just curious of what you're hearing. Um, I think, you know, two things that I'd heard consistently over the last few years had been um, that they folks want a more effective state government. You know, I, I wrote a lot about the Oregon Employment Department uh, over the last two years, and that's just quintessential state failure. And it wasn't a surprise. Uh, 
colleagues of mine at the Oregonian wrote, you know, in 2015, 2016 timeframe about some serious problems there. State audit auditors, the Secretary of State's office published two really scathing audits and it didn't get fixed. And so it was a real conspicuous failure. And the, you can go up and down. There's few that are that spectacular, but I, I think people, if they're going to spend this money, uh, they want to see results from it. Uh, and, you know, a, a more effective state government has been something that they've really wanted to see. And, and more recently, the thing that people had really been leaning on was workforce development, that for demographic reasons, as well as economic growth reasons, we're, we're flying into a, a, a worker shortage. And we were headed there even before the pandemic and, and all the distortions that created. And so people really wanted to see, you know, more improved education and a pathway in, into worker development. And the state has taken some steps in that direction. But again, back to the first point, how effective will we be in implementing those? I am hearing now, uh, you know, more concern about taxes um, and the level of taxes and the appetite for additional things. And I think it, by and large, the business community probably has, I, there were a lot of businesses that lined up be, behind the cat uh, in 2019 uh, in the legislature. And, you know, the manufacturers said right afterwards, we're putting it on the ballot. We're going to, you know, we're going to have a, uh, a re referendum and, 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 and repeal it that didn't materialize. There just wasn't the appetite for that then. Um, people were generally supportive and wanted to give it a try. I think there's no appetite right now for a big new initiative um, at least statewide. Uh, and in Portland, the Portland area too, there will be resistance. Um, and within the Portland city limits, something might happen, I could imagine. But I think people want to see, businesses want to see a more effective state government. They want to see something that can address their priorities. Mm. Well, Mike, this has been a fascinating and very educational conversation for me. Um, thank you for, for coming on the podcast. Our final question for all guests, which is probably a pretty easy answer for you, is if folks want to learn more about you, connect with you, read more of your stuff, what's the best place, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, um, I'm, I, I try to be very accessible. Uh, uh, OregonLive.com. Uh, my office number is 503-294-7699. My email is mrogaway at oregonian.com and Twitter is at rogaway. Uh, give me a shout. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm like any journalist, always hungry for information, always interested in conversations. There it is. On. Send your business tips to Mike. <laughs> um, awesome. Or, or direct, direct any business hate mail. At, at <laughs> yes. If you don't like inflation, blame Mike Rogaway. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Mike, for jumping on the pod. And to all our listeners, thanks for sticking through it. And uh, we'll see you next week. Later, everyone. Thanks for having me.